everybody. You are listening to the Church Theology Podcast, a podcast on the church for the church. My name is Kirk Miller, and today I have with me Patrick Miller. Welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Uh, it's fantastic to be here with you, Kirk. So Patrick, is uh, he's a graduate of Covenant Theological Seminary, and he is one of the pastors at a church called The Crossing. He writes for the Gospel Coalition and Christianity Today, and he is one of the co-hosts, along with his fellow pastor, uh, Chris Simon, he's one of the co-hosts of a book, a new book, Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not the Donkey or the Elephant. That came out in October Uh, So a little bit less than a month ago, a little over 200 pages, and it really comes out of the ministry that they do. Uh, He and Keith are hosts of a podcast called Truth Over Tribe, but we're going to be focusing in on this idea of Truth Over Tribe, which is really a book written to sort of combat political tribalism. And so let me just ask you off the bat here, Patrick, what was your impetus for writing this book? Why did you guys feel that a book like this was needed? Well, Kirk, I I think you already nailed it. It came out of our ministry as church leaders. And we were talking ahead of this. It it sounds like you and I actually have very similar churches in terms of the political demographics. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're located in Columbia, Missouri, and Missouri is now a red state, but we are in the same city as the flagship university, the University of Missouri. And like any uh, university town, it skews left. So we're a blue dot in a red state. And that means that from the time we started the church 20 years ago, our church has had people on both sides of the political aisle. They worship alongside one another. They're in small groups with one another. They bring each other meals, you know, when someone's sick or maybe they've just had a baby. That's just been a part of what our church has done. And so in some ways, we think that just by God's grace, we've had an opportunity to practice creating a space where there is less tribalism politically inside of the church. But the real impetus behind this goes back to 2016, and then really 2020 was the ultimate watershed moment where we began to realize that people in our church, 10 years ago, they wanted to ask us questions like, uh, can you tell me about predestination or election or infant baptism? These these deep, rich theological questions. And, and starting in 2016, then especially in 2020, the questions started to change. They wanted to know what we thought about CRT. They wanted to know what we thought about the LGBTQ agenda. They wanted to know what we thought about January 6th. And we think that Jesus does have things to say about the pressing cultural and political issues of our time. And so we sought to answer those questions. But what we quickly discovered was that people weren't looking for the Sermon on the Mount. They were looking for the sermonizing of Tucker Carlson or the scriptural pages of the New York Times. That's what they wanted us to parrot. And when we didn't do that, when we said, no, we're going to try to keep Jesus in the center here, it caused a lot of resistance. And it made us realize that even though we had a politically diverse church, that's not the same thing as having a politically healthy Mm -hmm. or politically discipled church, Mm -hmm. a church that says, hey, here's what Jesus has to say, again, about the pressing cultural issues of our time. Yeah. Can you tell us, too, a little bit about your own personal background, where you're coming from personally and what role that plays in the book? Yeah. So my co-host and co-author, Keith Simon, and I come from the opposite spectrums of the political aisle. I remember in 2008, I was a college student. I had just become a Christian. I'm 19. And it was during the time of the Obama-McCain presidential election. And back then, Missouri was still a swing state. So uh, it wasn't uncommon that presidential candidates would come and speak there. And that's what happened. Barack Obama came to my college campus. And I remember walking there with my friends. And it was ecstatic. We we, we were filled with hope. Things were going to be different. 
different. We were so dismayed and disappointed by the Bush presidency. And surely Barack Obama was going to change things. He was going to make uh, life better for homeless people. He was going to make the country less militaristic. In so many ways, we thought that he was going to solve the problems that we faced. And what I had to face over the next four years and then eight years when he was reelected was that actually a lot of the issues that I cared most about didn't change dramatically on a local level. And that showed me that I had some political idealism. I thought that a political party in some sense could bring God's kingdom. And what I had Mm -hmm. to learn just through experience was that that's not how it works. God's kingdom doesn't come, I think, through political action primarily as much as through the work of the church being a generous, kind, self-sacrificial community that transforms local uh, communities in profound ways. Yeah. So help us understand some of the problem that you guys see. In your book, you break it down into three sections. Uh, The first is how tribalism hurts you. The second is why we're tribal. And the third is how to leave tribalism behind. So let's focus in on that first one uh, here and help us see our tribalism. Like, where do you see evidence of tribalism in society as well as in the church? Man, in some ways, I I just want to tell people, well, just look around, read the newspaper, get onto social media. Sometimes (laughs) it feels like it's all that we can see. But And a story immediately comes to mind for me. Again, this is just out of our church. Back during COVID, uh, there's a local pastry shop, coffee shop, that employs primarily people with disabilities. And because of COVID hitting and no one knew what was going to happen, it looked like they were going to have to lay a lot of these people off. And so we're a relatively big church with some resources. And we thought, well, one good thing we could do is help keep this business business in business. And the way we thought we would do that is by buying cinnamon rolls. And so once we bought all these cinnamon rolls, we thought, well, where are we going to send them? What will we do with them? And we began to send the cinnamon rolls to local schools because at the time, school teachers were really on the front lines. They're having to figure out how to teach classes on Zoom. I mean, things they'd never done before. And so we we just wanted to encourage them. There's nothing Christian-y about it. You know, each each little cinnamon roll didn't come with a little Jesus flag implanted on it. it was, we just said, hey, we're so grateful for you and our work. And this went great. The teachers were raving about it. This is awesome. We love cinnamon rolls. They felt appreciated until we sent cinnamon rolls to one middle school, which uh, canceled them. They, they rejected our, our cinnamon roll offer. And uh, they, they reached out to the to the place I was giving them the cinnamon rolls and said, hey, we, we can't accept cinnamon rolls from the crossing because uh, we believe that they are uh, anti-LGBTQ. Now, to be really clear, we're not anti-LGBTQ. We, we believe what the Bible says about uh, gender and sexuality, and that's something we've always been forthright about. But we've always also said God calls us to love our gay neighbor and our trans neighbor. And and that's the thing that we tend to put more into the foreground when it comes to our teaching. Uh, But they said they couldn't take it. And so my co-host, Keith Simon, he reached out to the principal and said, hey, could we we grab lunch sometime? Now, I just want to pause there for a second because so often that's where things break down. I mean, we could have done a number of things. We could have gone onto the news media and talked about how terrible the school is. We could have written a, a letter to the school board saying, hey, this principal's misrepresenting our views to local patients shops. There's a lot of options. We could have just ignored it, uh, but that's not what we did. We said, no, we, we want to get together and understand. And so he grabbed lunch with uh, the, the principal. They grabbed pizza. I mean, you know, who knows? Maybe the principal just wasn't a sweet guy. So so they did pizza <laughs> together. Yeah. And, and as they talked, they both learned about each other and realized they both weren't as bad as they thought. He realized that, that Keith wasn't some sort of fundamentalist anti-LGBTQ person holding out signs and, 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 and sharing messages of hate. He, he understood what Keith was saying. And on the flip side, 
outside, Keith realized what the principal was doing, which was he, he had a, a staff member who was concerned about this, and he was just trying to protect that staff member's interests. He was just trying to do his best job as a principal representing someone who worked for him. And, and, and they both walked out of that conversation realizing that they had a lot of common ground. They both love students in Columbia. They both want what's best for students in our city. And, and, and that's a beautiful story of, of tribalism gone awry, but then, you know, there's healing at the end of it. But generally speaking, that's not the way these stories seem to be going. It seems like when these events happen, they just become fodder for news media and it divides people further. It, pro- it polarizes people further. Yeah, for sure. I asked that question and I'm not assuming many people would probably actually be wondering, you know, are we tribal? Yeah, I think we yeah. sense that. We've seen the data. Even if we haven't seen the data, we feel it. But I, I, I could see someone asking, okay, so we're tribal. So what? Is tribalism actually a bad thing? You know, what if I think that one side, so to say, has the answers and the other side is out to, you know, destroy who America ought to be or corrupt our society? Um, So convince that person that tribalism is even a problem to begin with. Why does tribalism pose a problem? Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic question, and, and there's some fascinating answers to that. The first one would be this: back in the 1950s, there were some studies that were done about Republicans and Democrats and their platforms at the time, and the study concluded that they weren't polarized enough. That the American electorate mm-hmm. needed the parties to be more polarized so they would know who to vote for. And I, now we're kind of uh, reaping the fruit that they sowed all the way back then. But I think at a more fundamental level, just let's just get personal. Let's set aside the social issues. Not that I think we must set those aside. We can talk about those in a second. Just Let's just get personal for one second. Are your relationships better when there's tribalism? Is your community healthier when there's tribalism? It Does society function better when there's tribalism? One little story to illustrate that. I've got a friend who goes to family reunions. She's a saint because I never want to go to family reunions, <laughs> but she went. It was actually for her spouse. And get this, this family has been meeting together for 37 years, over 100 family members meeting together for 37 years. And then in 2016, I guess one family member had a few too many bush lights and started announcing very loudly publicly that he was going to vote for Donald Trump. And this elicited the opposite response from a never Trumper in the family. I would never vote for Donald Trump. How could you vote for Donald Trump? Now, under ordinary circumstances, maybe the argument ends there and they all get back together and pretend it never happened at the next family reunion. But this family has a Facebook group and the battle continues on the Facebook group. And over the next few years, this ended. It it divided their family entirely. There there were family members that got married and they did not invite those who didn't agree with their politics. There was one family member, a young guy in his 30s with young kids. He died. Some of the family members boycotted his funeral because of who he voted for. So just pause and ask yourself, is tribalism good? I mean, was it good for that family, at least? Is it good for your relationships? Does tribalism really lead people to love one another more, as Jesus calls us to love one another? Does it really create health in our relationships and in our psychology? And I think on just about every count you can imagine, tribalism is bad for us. Yeah, yeah. And it impacts us, as we'll get into here, it impacts us personally as well. We see it all over the place. You see it in social media. I think also in the evangelical community, statistics would show that evangelicals, unfortunately, are not immune to tribalism. No. um, But in some ways are actually the most susceptible. Evangelicals at times are the most embracing of conspiracy theories, unfortunately. 
And so, yeah, we see this in our own lives. We see it in our society. Talk to us a little bit about how tribalism impacts us personally, like just on an individual level, why tribalism is bad for us. Yeah, I, I, again, great question. And, I, you know, I have a few thoughts, but my, my first thought would be this. If Jesus thought that tribalism wasn't a problem, he would have selected uh, 12 disciples who agreed on absolutely everything in mm. their day. He, he would have found 12 politically adjacent disciples <laughs> and brought them along. And yet we see him do the exact opposite. In his group of 12, who does he have? He's got Matthew, the tax collector. So here's a Roman sympathizer. We, he, he's, he's on the side of the enemy, uh, according to the average Jew at the time. And he has Simon the Zealot, someone who thought that the best political answer to the problem facing Jews at the time was to take up arms and physically resist the Romans. He puts these guys in the same crew. And of course, he's got a wide range of people inside of that. Add to that, that just in the very early years of the church, he tells them to go make disciples of the nations. And in fact, in Peter's vision, I mean, he basically has to force the disciples to go and make disciples who were not Jewish, mm -hmm. who were Gentiles. And so from the start, the major issue that faced the early church, about a third of Paul's letters, is all about ethnic tribalism and the notion that if we want to represent who Jesus is to the world, if we want to show the lie of the powers which want to divide us into our tribes, the best way for us to do that is ultimately to love one another and to have and to have a group of people where the normal tribal boundaries no longer exist. It's a way of saying Jesus is in charge here because the things that divide the world, they're not in charge here. I, on a personal level, I, I, I think this comes out in a number of ways, but perhaps more than any other, it would just be anxiety. Mm -hmm. I mean, right now we are seeing the increase of, of anxiety disorders, unlike uh, on an order that we've never seen before in American society. And while I don't think tribalism is entirely to blame for that problem, I do think it creates much of the problem. And the problem with anxiety is there, there's there's places for fear. So, so let me give an illustration of that. The other night uh, I was in my living room and my wife, need, you know, she, she nudges me. She goes, hey, there's there's someone with a flashlight in our backyard right now. This is the middle of the night. And so that's obviously kind of scary. So I go and I get my mag light and I go out onto uh, the back deck and I turn on the mag light and I shine it on the person and I say very loudly, who are you? You're in my yard. What are you doing? That kind of thing. And the person responds and it's the, the kid across the street looking <laughs> for a ball that he lost. Okay. Now, see, this is the problem. If he was there to, to threaten us, to hurt us, right. then, then fear was probably a proper response. But the minute I found out that this is just the neighbor kid across the street, my response had to change. I, I had to let go of the anxiety I had and realize this is maybe a little weirdies in my backyard, but it's not the end of the world. We're all going to be okay. And that's what tribalism does. You walk out with your mag light, you've got the light on, and you're yelling, and it does not matter what the other person says because they're in the other tribe. It's not the kid across the street. It's the person that I think I must hate, I must dislike because I disagree with them. And that anxiety rarely leaves you. You can't be a non-anxious presence in the lives of the people at your work or in your family or at your church if you are constantly on edge because you think that there's a war out there. There is not, I mean, there, there is a war. It's not the war that you think. And what Jesus calls us to do is to be a non-anxious presence, just like him in those environments. Yeah, for sure. And I, I, I think most of us can probably Note that in our own lives, like if you spend a lot of time on social media and you're encountering the animosity that occurs in those spaces at times, the tension, oh, you yeah. probably feel anxious afterwards. If you notice how you feel before you open up your phone and how you feel afterwards, just notice the anxiety you feel afterwards and how much better you feel when you don't spend as much time. What do they call that? Doom scrolling? Um, there's a reason <laughs> well, they call it doom scrolling. 
Yeah, and it's really true. I mean, we we are increasingly spending more of our lives online, and people who are highly online individuals experience this more than others. The thing about social media is that it makes the fringe look normal and the normal look fringe. And so if you're on Twitter and all you follow is libs of TikTok or Patriot Takes on the other side, you're going to get this impression about how the world actually is that's totally out of balance with the world. I mean, I, I, I'm not trying to be rude on this, but like, go outside, go get a cheeseburger, fill up your gas tank. Like, your life probably is not that difficult, especially if you're uh, a relatively middle class, affluent person. Is your world really ending? Are, are these people really an existential threat to your way of life? Well, just look at your life and ask the question. I mean, have you lost your business or are things going under? These are the kinds of just fundamental questions we ought to ask ourselves to calm down the nervous system and say, hey, maybe my perception of reality that I get, whether it's from news media or from social media or from whoever it is that I'm following, maybe that's not the uh, the right perception of reality. Maybe I need to right size my reality by looking at where I'm at in my life right now. Yeah. And politics runs on, on fear. It's the currency mm. of politics is fear. And that's why you see people uh, doing attack ads more than actually promoting their policies and such positively in their ads. Um, but fear provokes anxiety. Fear pro- provokes worry. But we as Christians of all people should not be anxious and should not yeah. be fearful because we know that even if things uh, don't go the way we want, and let's say even if in big ways they don't go the way we want in society. Like there are actual some, Mm. say things go politically in a way that is actually pretty detrimental in terms of how Christians we would assess things. Even if that were to happen, even still, we don't have reason to be fearful um, because we live with an eternal perspective. We live with the perspective that Christ is on the throne. He's guiding all things. All things are working according to his will. And so we of all people should not be fearful and should therefore not be susceptible, nearly as susceptible to the tribalism that runs on fear. Yeah. And um, I think we have some profound examples in the Bible to draw on of that kind of attitude towards our political witness. Um, on the negative side, you know, you said that politics is motivated by fear. I can't help but think about it. Go back and read Exodus 1, and, and you look at what Pharaoh did, which led to the enslavement of the, of the Israelites. He stokes fear in the Egyptians. He says uh, these these Jewish people, these Israelites, they're going to uh, become an army that's going to take us over. They're going to try to take power from us. And this is what essentially metastasizes into them enslaving the entire Israelite people. So he used fear as a Mm. political motivation to lead to their enslavement. And yet God calls the Israelites when they're in the promised land to welcome the Egyptian. He doesn't say be afraid of them, which would seem pretty rational. I mean, they're still a really powerful nation. Maybe they'll enslave us again. He tells them to welcome them. I think another example is Daniel and his friends. I mean, these are guys who faced actual existential threats. Daniel is thrown into a lion's den. His friends are thrown into a fiery furnace because they refuse to worship the idols of the culture that they were in. And yet what we see again and again is that they showed honor, wisdom, and tact towards the rulers who were trying to attack them. These were not, you know, godly men worshiping Yahweh. And again and again, they did their job with character. They did their job with excellence such that they were often elevated into places of influence, but they were never clawing for the political power. They received it when it came and they let it go when it disappeared. And I think that that way of exile, which is, I think, how Jesus trains us to think, we, we should see ourselves as exiles in America. Look, the promise of Exodus 19 that Israel would be a holy nation, that gets applied to the church by the apostle Peter in his first letter. He says that the church is now a holy nation and a royal priesthood. And what does that mean? It means that there is no Christian nation. 
There is no, America is not a special Christian nation with a special covenant with God. That covenant is with the church and the church is not a state. And so as a result, the church must always, whether they're in uh, great countries or not so great countries or terrible countries, and you know, there are better and worse places that I would want to live in the world right now. So I'm not trying to, you know, make false equivalencies. My way of being in the world actually doesn't change. I'm called to live as a member of this church body, as this body of Christ, as an exile in the world. And as an exile, I don't expect to have all the power. I, you know what Jesus doesn't need for me? He doesn't need me to take power. Why? Because he's already sitting on the throne of heaven. Getting a job in the Oval Office would be a major downgrade for Jesus. So I don't have to worry about that that much. What he needs from me is my obedience. He needs me to be holy. He needs me to be loving and charitable and kind and generous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. When you're driven by fear, then power is a, is a means of protection. And so we'll, yes. we'll view political engagement as power plays. And so we'll end up compromising our ethics, compromising our values for the sake of achieving power and what protects us. Um, so are we driven in our politics by self-protection and self-preservation? Otherwise, if we mm. go into the political arena with a profound hope and a stability due to our faith in Christ, due to our trust in him as the sovereign Lord, we can engage things with a willingness to lose because the existential matters don't actually hang in the balance. Yes. We can keep our integrity as we engage and and leave the results in God's hand. Yes. I also think one of the effects of tribalism is even just very basically, besides anxiety too, of course, but is also our ability to be objective and mm-hmm. rational and not fall into bias, right? Um, and so what we do when we fall prey to tribalism is essentially we, you know, and there, there's some sense of this, which uh, is understandable. None of us is an expert on every issue. And so in a lot of ways, our ability to come to positions is by means of trusting people, finding people that we trust, experts that can help us think through matters that maybe we ourselves are not as studied in. Yeah. So some of this is inevitable, but when we fall prey to tribalism, um, we essentially outsource our thinking to a political party or an interest mm-hmm. group of some sort. And we assume that they have all the answers or that their motives are necessarily the right sort of motives. And and that's not what we want to do as Christians. That's going to deteriorate our ability to think Christianly when we outsource our thinking to groups that aren't Christian. Um, and mm-hmm. so that, that's not some, that's not something that we want to find ourselves doing. Let me ask you, too, in terms of our relationships, how does tribalism impact our relationships? Yeah, you know, again, I, I, th- I think what tribalism does is a little bit of what you're saying. It makes it nearly impossible to to have uh, relationships where we're able to talk about challenging substantive issues uh, without discrediting one another. I mean, what you were just talking about a second ago is, is key to me. That to, to, I, I call that epistemic humility. It's this notion that I don't have the corner on truth. I don't know everything about everything. I mean, Jesus was asked when he would return, and he said, I don't even know when I'm going to return. So if Jesus doesn't know everything about everything. There's no possible way that that little old me is going to know absolutely everything. And that's one of the ways that I think it harms relationships is because we we begin to either avoid those topics or we talk across each other in those topics. And what we're seeing on both sides of the political aisle right now is, is what I would describe as kind of the rise of relativism in general. And I think when people think about relativism, they tend to think, oh, what you're saying is the idea that there is no capital T truth. There's only just a bunch of lowercase 
HT truths. Everybody has their own truth. And of course, that's a form of relativism, but we're seeing a very different form of it. What we're seeing is um, people in these little echo chambers who have absolute and total certainty. And the reason they have absolute and total certainty is because they agree with everybody in their echo chamber. That's a different form of relativism. Uh, when, when, when the only person who can tell you what's right and what's wrong is either yourself or people who already agree with you, you are a relativist. And why I say that is because God created a world outside of you and me. He created an objective world. And if that world can't correct us when we're wrong, if that world can't uh tell us, hey, you thought X was true, but actually Y is the reality. We are thoroughly subjectivistic. The only thing that matters is my subjective opinion. And what we're seeing is, again, on both sides of the political aisle, whether it's conspiracy theories on the right or it's maybe things like critical theory over on the left, we're seeing these echo chambers where the only people who have the right to speak are the people who are inside of the chamber. And and when you lose persuasion, in the absence of persuasion, there really is only coercion. The only way to win now is not to persuade the person mm. that they're incorrect. It's to coerce them. It's again to an arm wrestling match, to be louder, to be angrier, to be more aggressive. And that destroys relationships. It's also fundamentally not Christian. The Apostle Paul said to the Roman church, let every person be persuaded in their own mind. And he's talking about something as important as our faith in Christ. He said you can't coerce people into being Christians. Again, if that's true of our faith, how much more so should it be true of our political beliefs? That I don't think I should be coercing you. I should be trying trying to persuade you into my position. But again, that's really, really challenging in a tribalistic world because persuasion becomes impossible when there are no shared truths, no shared realities, when the only way you'll listen to me is if I'm in your tribe. Right. And I think it also creates those that we disagree with into enemies. Yes. So we use this metaphor called culture war, and I think we need a better metaphor. What is war? War is I'm actually trying to destroy the other person. I'm trying to, you know, kill them, incapacitate them, whatever the case may be, they are a threat to me. Mm. In Christian ethics, we are to love our enemies uh, such that you don't actually treat enemies as enemies. In that sense, there are no enemies, right? We're trying to win them. With war, you have casualties. So if we're fighting over LGBTQ things, for example, politically, well, there are casualties in that. The people who are experiencing same-sex attraction or what have you and and feel like they're being attacked in the midst of some political battle we're conducting. And so I don't think war is the right metaphor. I think uh, it's not to say that we don't engage in politics and we don't try to engage Christianly and think how our own Christian convictions should apply to policy matters. So I'm not, don't mishear me as if I'm saying, therefore, we just kind of take our hands off. Like, no, we should be active in politics for the sake of loving our neighbor. But maybe the way we think about that is less war and more, how do I, how do I use politics to serve my neighbor and to love them? Which means I still want to engage in politics Christianly because I think my Christian convictions are a way of actually loving those in society. But that means I'm not seeing the other side, so to say, as an enemy that needs to be defeated or that's a threat to me. Yeah. Well, and that's, that's again, this is what tribalism does to communities and it does to individuals, is it, is it creates absolutely unnecessary enemies. W- one way we saw this happen is, is our church was, for a long time, uh, we partnered with a local documentary film festival, one of the largest ones in the country. And uh, we, we partnered with them by, by running their nonprofit, which would go to support some good cause related to one of the films that they were showing. Now, the film festival was very, very progressive. We're an evangelical church, so we seemed about as far 
apart from each other as you can imagine <laughs> on the political spectrum. Uh, but slowly over time, we built these really amazing relationships with each other. I became good friends with the festival directors, as did some of our other pastors. Our church members began to attend the festival. Some of them became super volunteers. Some of them even joined the staff team of the festival. People from the festival came and checked out our church as a result of that interesting relationship. I mean, and I mean, it drew attention. There was an article in the New York Times and Christianity Today because this was so unusual that people who should be enemies, according to the world, were acting like friends. Uh, but all this blew up in our in our faces when uh, we were preaching through the book of Genesis and we got to the passage where it says that God created them male and female. And so we preached a sermon saying that, yes, according to the Bible, there are only two immutable genders. But the heart of the message was we need to love our neighbors who are trans. This is not a permission to be hateful or unkind towards them. They are still made in the image of God and worthy of our love, worthy of our of, of our of our time, our energy, our money, our, our, our gifts, all of that. Uh, but that sermon, which again, the festival knew our position on these issues. It wasn't like we, we pulled one out of left field on them. Um, it, it caused them to break apart our partnership. There was an uproar in the community. You need to uh, break your partnership with our church. And so they did. And what happened, I mean, I mean, I really mean this, our community has not been the same since then. There was this sense in which we were all able to say we're different, but you know what we share? We want the culture, we, we want the arts to flourish in our city. We, we want people from across the political aisle to build bridges and to get to know one another and share meals with each other. It's something that we were both able to embrace. And now that's kind of broken apart. And in the aftermath of that, uh, you know, it was really interesting because we had to decide how we were going to respond. Would we get on social media and say, hey, they knew this all along. They're being ridiculous. Would, would we go into the culture war mindset and attack them back and say, hey, you want to know some truths about them that you don't know? And, and this is in the midst of, I mean, again, big public national articles that are being written about our church. And, and we decided very intentionally that that's not the way of Jesus, that even if they wanted to be our enemies for this moment, we were not going to treat them as our enemies. We were going to love them. And so I got onto social media, as did others, and said, hey, we love this film festival. Please keep going to the film festival. Continue to support it with your money, with your time, with your volunteer hours, all of that. And the festival director and I were, were spending some time together afterwards. And and he just looked at me and he goes, I, I just have to be honest with you. This, is, this guy's not a Christian. He has really nothing to do with Christianity. He goes, that was a masterclass on grace. I don't know how you did that. And I wanted to say, oh, it's because we're such great people. We've got our acts together. Aren't we awesome? But then I go, you know, honestly, I don't know how we did it either. What I can tell you is that we were trained how to do it by the first person to truly love his enemies. And that's Jesus. We're just trying to do what Jesus did. He treated us in a way that we never deserved. And so we need to treat you guys in a way that we, in a way that you don't uh, deserve either. And so again, I mean, just illustrates the point. No one wants to live in a community where we're being divided by tribalism, where we can't build bridges. But on the flip side, even if that starts happening, we don't go into the culture warrior mindset. Instead, we follow the way of Jesus and we love our enemies. We show them grace and mercy and forgiveness where no one else would. Yeah. How do you think tribalism specifically affects relationships within the church now, like fellow church members, fellow believers in the same body? Yeah. I mean, I, I think it can make some relationships really, really hard. I've talked to people on both sides of the political aisle who assure me that they they simply cannot conceptualize a Christian who would vote for the other candidate. They could not conceptualize a Christian who could be a good person who would vote for the other candidate, which in part tells you that they actually probably lack relationships with anyone <laughs> on the <laughs> other side of the political aisle, because the minute you get to know someone, those kinds of walls come down, you know, so it was sure. obvious they were living inside of these 
echo chambers. Um, but it's challenging on two levels. It, it's challenging on the relational level. I think it's also challenging if you want to be a leader in the church. And I'm not just saying being a pastor in church. I'm saying being a small group leader or, or just being someone who wants to disciple your family. It becomes really challenging to, to know how to navigate these tough political issues. Uh, one small example of that, after uh, George Floyd was murdered, we got a message in Facebook that Sunday morning from someone saying, hey, if you don't talk about this on stage and lament it, we're going to leave the church. Now, that's not going to dictate to us what we do in our service on Sundays, but we had already been planning on having a brief moment of lamentation. There were a lot of people in our country who were hurting over what happened because it represented something bigger for them than even just George Floyd's life. And so we needed to lament that with, uh, in many cases, our black community members who were part of our church. And so we did that. But you can imagine what happened afterwards. We got mm-hmm. the emails from the other side coming in saying, I can't believe you guys did something like that during your church service. Are you saying that all police officers are racist? Now, we didn't say anything about police officers really in the service. There was nothing about police officers being racist, um, but it just shows you if you want to be a leader and talk about these things in a Christ-like way, which by the way, he said, blessed are those who grieve, blessed are those who mourn, right? So that's what we were doing. We were doing a Sermon on the Mount thing whenever we grieved and mourned with our hurting neighbors. If you want to walk in that way, you're going to offend people on both sides. And on some level, I think church leaders just have to become okay with that. We're not going to offend you by being a jerk. We're not going to offend you by being rude. But we might offend you by doing the thing that Jesus calls us to do in any given moment. And if that's what it is, that's okay. We can still show you mercy and kindness. Yeah. And I think the way that political tribalism divides relationships in the church and damages relationships, it's so sad because these are people who, they're fellow members. They confess the same statement of faith when they become members. They confess the same church covenant when they become members. We we have so much in common, yeah. maybe folks who have had relationships for so long. And then all of a sudden, the political season comes along. The Typically, the presidential one is the one that kind of kicks up the most dust for people and they get the most heated about and and all of a sudden those relationships uh suffer because of it and and it nothing's changed in terms of like they're the same people they believe the same things i think we need to in those moments check our knee-jerk reactions what does that say about you i think when folks have those knee-jerk reactions it may be more telling about themselves than anyone else Um, why is it that I have such a visceral reaction to someone disagreeing with me politically or maybe struggling with an area that I think is so just clear cut? And and just to remember, we're on the same team. We're not trying to equivocate and say everyone's politics is perfect. And no matter what you view, like you're, you're automatically good. Like there's no right or wrong. Like there are some issues that are, you, we can argue about and, and, and actually make the case. This is a more Christian view, but to just go in, not necessarily assuming that you have all the answers or that everyone is a finished product and yeah. is maybe still working on what it means to live faithfully in the public yeah. square. There's, there, there's a real problem when you are foreground your politics and your political ideology ahead of your theology, which you believe to be true about Jesus and God. If you believe that this person who maybe you now find it difficult to like because of who they want to vote for or what they said on Facebook recently, if you're finding it difficult to love them, and yet you know that in the renewed creation, you will be resurrected alongside them to spend eternity together, you tell me which one matters more in the long term. And when you start to realize that what we share in common in Christ supersedes absolutely everything else, I think it sets you free from, on the one hand, having to win a fight. 
maybe you can go to that person and say, you know what, I don't need to defend my position, but I know this person and there's got to be a good reason they believe what they believe. What if you just sat down with them and said, hey, you said this thing and honestly, it kind of bothered me, but I'm not, I don't want to get in a fight with you. I just want to understand why did you say that? Why do you believe that? What's happened in your life? What, what in your story has kind of led you down a path of thinking that this makes sense? And again, my guess is that it's going to be a mixed story, but you're going to walk away realizing they believe what they believe for very human reasons, the same way that you believe what you believe for very human reasons. And if they'll give you the same service of listening to your side, you might actually get into a productive conversation where both of you are able to convince each other of different things. But that requires profound humility on both sides. And there's only one side you get to control. That's you. <laughs> so start with your yourself, say, this is going to be in the background for me. I'm going to walk in with a listening ear. I'm going to realize that I have blind spots in my life that I have a very difficult time seeing. And this person might be God's gift to me to show me a blind spot. And I don't know until I give them a hearing. Yeah. And if your political convictions are are manifesting in a unlovingness to your neighbor, like no matter how Christian you think your political convictions are, they can never be used as an excuse not to love your neighbor. Yes. Loving your neighbor is a Christian thing to do. And so at that point, your politics are acting unchristian, no matter what the position is that you're holding. Yeah, I mean, I think about Daniel with with Darius, the the Persian king at the time, and you know he he sets up this edict that for a month everybody needs to send all their prayers straight to himself. Everybody's praying to to Darius, and Daniel doesn't go and protest. He doesn't get a sign and picket. He doesn't go and get his axe and say, "All right, if you're going to make yourself into an idol, I'm going to chop your head off." Because that's idolatry, and it's clearly wrong, and it is. It's very wrong. What does Daniel do? He goes up into his room. He shuts the door, he opens the window, and he prays to Yahweh just like he usually does. And I think he prepares to die. <laughs> he knows what's going to happen. And what happens? He gets thrown to the lion's den. There's no guarantee that you ever walk out of the lion's den. In his, in his case, he did. But the beauty of it is that when Darius throws him into the lion's den, he is now praying to Yahweh, please rescue your servant. If you're at all real, please be with him. And I think that's where we should be with our enemies, where if they have to punish us because they have to stay true to their own orthodoxy and their own try, may they punish us with regret. <laughs> may, may they hate the fact that they have to say something hard and difficult about us. And may they be with us praying, gosh, please don't make this be as bad. And again, I go back to that story with the film festival. That's exactly what happened with that film festival. They didn't want to issue a public statement condemning us. They did it with huge, huge, tremendous pain, which they told us behind the scenes how much pain they had over the decision. Look, I don't know that they could have done anything differently at the time rather than coming out and saying, hey, this church said things we disagree with. But man, I thought that's exactly what it should be. We should love our enemies so well that they hate to hurt us. Yeah. And so there's lots of things we briefly talked about that are fueling the tribalism in our society. I'd like to ask you about part two in the book, which addresses that question. Can you talk to us about some of those reasons you guys lay out in the book for why we see so much tribalism? Yeah, so we lay out a number of reasons. Uh, one is that the human mind, the human brain, is is quite literally hardwired for tribalism. Another is the loss of truth, which we've already discussed. Another would be uh, social media and the way that big tech is polarizing us. And the last one would be the loss of what's called social capital. Social capital is just wealth and relationships. And we are living through the Great Depression of social capital. We have very thin relationships in our communities right now. When you lack relationships, you begin to lack trust, the ability to assume the best about your neighbor when he does or she does something that you disagree with. So I, we, we can talk about any of those. Is, is there one in particular you'd like to explore? 
Um, I think in particular, I'd be interested in social media, I guess, as well as yeah. the brain being tribal. Maybe talk yeah. us about those. Yeah. So l- l- let's start with the brain. This was one of those things we, you know, when you're writing a book and you're doing the research, there's things that come up that you don't quite know how to handle. And <laughs> yeah. the brain was one of them, right? Because if God created us, what do we do with the fact that it seems, I mean, I, I could, I've got about six different studies and there's way more than that that we cite in the book that show that the human brain is quite literally hardwired for tribalism. I'll tell you my favorite one. It was a researcher named Karsten DeDrew out of Leiden University. And he, he got this wild idea about oxytocin. Oxytocin is a love drug. It's what releases in a mom's brain when she sees her baby for the first time. And the same thing for the baby, oxytocin in the baby's brain. It's what causes them to bond with one another. It's what you feel when you see your beloved. It's what you feel like is missing when the, the magic has gone out. It's released in uh, your brain if you're, if you're in the military and you're marching together oxytocin releases. If you go to a rave, oxytocin releases when you're dancing with everyone. If you're in worship and you're singing alongside the congregation, oxytocin releases in your brain. And that's because it's a binding drug. It's part Mm. of what makes us feel connected to other people. And so this researcher, Karsten DeDrew, he got this wild idea. What if we just pumped oxytocin into the water? And wouldn't everybody just love each other more? We'd be more self-sacrificial. We'd be more generous with our time. And so he did a test. He had two groups of men. One was a control without oxytocin. The other one, he swabbed oxytocin and put it inside of their noses. And sure enough, the oxytocin group was more generous, more self-sacrificial, more kind. Everything that you would think of as kind of Christian behavior, the more oxytocin they got, the more they were like that. There was just one catch they were way more antagonistic towards outsiders. Way more antagonistic towards people who are on the outside of their group than than the, than the control group, which revealed something. Oxytocin, the love drug, is not actually the love drug. It's the tribal drug. It, it, this thing that's released in our brain and our most important relationships isn't just designed to make us bind with others. It's designed to make us want to push or even attack outsiders, people who are outside the group. And, and I've had to wrestle with how do you make sense of that theologically? And I think the answer comes down to in a Genesis 1 world— oxytocin and the, and the brain's disposition to love the tribe is beautiful because there's only one tribe. <laughs> if, if you were designed to love everybody who's in your tribe and you're all in the same tribe, what, what could be better than that? But in a Genesis 3 world, we began to divide. And when we divide, that gift of, of love inside the tribe begins to metastasize. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves uh, feeling hatred and anger and disdain towards people who are on the outside. And so what this really means for you as a Christian is the point of our book is not don't be tribal because guess what? There's no non-tribal human on planet earth. We are literally hardwired for this. The only choice we get is which tribe to belong to. You just get to pick which tribe. And this is why the Jesus revolution is so, so, so amazing because Jesus, he, he establishes a tribe, his church. And that's the tribe I think you should want to belong to. But I hesitate to call it a tribe because it's so different than every other tribe mm-hmm. out there. It's like the non-tribal tribe. It is. It's, it's, it's instead of hating your enemies or, or wanting to beat your enemies, Jesus is, his tribe is the only tribe that's called to love the other tribe, to put the other tribe first. Most tribes have boundary markers. You can't come in if X, Y, Z is true of you. Jesus's tribe is literally welcome to absolutely everyone. Anyone can follow Jesus. Anyone is welcomed inside the church. And so everything that defines kind of unhealthy tribes, which is uh, we, we, we exclude people and we want to uh, beat or harm people who are on the outside, everything that defines other tribes, the opposite is true of Jesus's tribe. And that's why it's such a revolution when Jesus comes along and welcomes 
welcomes people into this body. And that's why I think for Christians, it's so important to keep your tribal identity fully and wholly fixated on Jesus. Because when he is at the heart and his people are at the heart of what it means to, to, to for, for you to be you, you'll find it much easier to love outsiders. You'll find it much easier to welcome in those who are on the outside. Hmm. How is social media exacerbating tribalism? Yeah, and, and there's some great uh, research on this out there. The, the Wall Street Journal broke an important story. So did uh, 60 Minutes. And so people can go look those up on big tech. But he, here's here's the short version of it. Um, when, when you get onto Facebook or Twitter or Instagram or Google, how much do you pay? Zero. Nothing. Mm-hmm. You pay. You pay absolutely nothing, which should actually shock you because Google is is the most effective library. It's the largest library of information in human history. Yet you pay nothing. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. These 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 are the most effective, largest social networking uh, technologies in human history. And what do you pay to access them? Less than you pay for your cell phone. So the question, of course, for every person should be is, well, why? Why do I have to pay nothing for this? And the dirty answer at the bottom of it all is that you aren't the customer. You're the product. These big tech companies are treating you like oil that they can mine, except they're not trying to get oil. They're trying to mine data from you. And so they're collecting data on absolutely everything you do to sell it to advertisers so that you'll buy whatever it is the advertiser is selling. That's how they make their money. But this creates an existential problem for these platforms, which is how do we keep people on them? Because if you get off Facebook, Facebook can't sell you ads. And so what the uh, people at Facebook and actually their algorithms, these are these are these are artificial intelligence. These are these are machines that have have learned you. They create a model of you. What, what they've what they've been designed to do is to keep you on their platforms and these machines, which I hate to break it to you. We, we are not as uh, smart as we think we are. The machines really can <laughs> manipulate us. They realize what keeps you on their platforms is emotion. And there's two emotions that really keep you on their platforms. One is less uh uh, salutary sex, right? So they're not always just going to show you sexual stuff. <laughs> the other one is anger. They know that if they can keep you outraged, you are more likely to stay on their platform. And so these algorithms, which are simply designed to keep you there, they started giving people more and more content that made them outraged. And because we live in such a political environment, this was often political content, much of it misinformation, much of it disinformation, not even honest information. And they began to feed it to the American public. And that feeding of information, I mean, the vast majority of Americans get some part of their news, some part of their worldview and ideology off of social media. They're feeding you information that's designed to keep you on their platform, which is designed to keep you outraged, which is not designed to show you the truth. And so in a very short period of time, social media has successfully, and they know they're doing this. There's internal documents that admit yeah, the fact that right. they're hacking the human brain. <laughs> and, and and they have they have used the human brain's uh, basic internal impetus towards tribalism to keep us on their platforms and to make polarization worse. Yeah. So baked into the very design of social media is to tribalize us. Yes. Baked into our brain, we are tribal. And so it's just good to be on the alert for these things, to not be susceptible. Leading then into the third section of the book then is how to leave tribalism behind. Let me ask this question. So if if those things are true, if we're tribal um, and it's a problem, do you have any suggestions for how we can self-assess for how we can look at our own level of tribalism, you know, what might be some of the questions we can ask of ourselves, things that we can look for. Yeah, I think there's lots of great questions. And 
Uh, if I could go back, we should probably amend that third part to say how to leave political tribalism behind. Sure, yeah. <laughs> like I said, in a real way, there is no leaving tribalism behind. But I think political tribalism, especially in today's moment when the personal is political, when everything is political, is is one of the most uh, divisive and toxic and corrosive forms of tribalism out there. Um, I, I think I think the first place I would start is this. Um, just ask yourself. Who are the people you have the hardest time listening to, showing kindness to, and showing generosity to? Just in your head, who, who, like, if someone says, I believe X, it is going to automatically make me like them less, want to show them less kindness, or give them less of my wealth. That, that's a great way of figure, figuring out how tribal you are. Now, for a lot of us, it will be a political ideology. It'll be if they voted for Donald Trump or if they voted for Hillary Clinton or if they voted for Joe Biden or if they voted third party or whatever it is, mm-hmm. that's going to be the thing that makes it really hard for me to love them and show them kindness and all those other Christian ethics. So that would be the first place that I, I would recommend starting if you're just trying to self-assess is who is it hard for me to love? And if you can't think of someone, you're either incredibly sanctified or you're probably just not being very honest with yourself. Yeah. I think too, asking what drives you the most in your engagement or in, in when you have those sort of emotions, mm. um, like we asked before, is it fear or is it love? Am I, am I driven to engage things because I'm anxious for my own self and my own welfare? Or am I driven out of a concern to love my neighbor? Yeah. Um, that would be another thing I can think of. I once heard someone describe emotions and they're saying, your 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 emotions are, are are not a great map for life. If you just follow wherever your emotions take you, you're going to end up in some places you never wanted to visit. Uh, but but they, they they are good radar. When you feel something, when it blips up on that emotional map for you, it's telling you that something's going on. So when you feel a sense of anger and outrage all of a sudden. That's like a little blip on your radar, and, and you should try to investigate that. You should try to dig into it and say, why, why is that outraging me? Why is that making me angry? And, of course, there's such a thing as righteous anger, so there might be a real sense in which, yeah, it's because there's a real injustice happening here, and, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm praying and longing that God would fix it and wondering how I can help. Uh, but more often than not, our outrage is a little blip on a radar that tells us, I've, I've put something in my life, some love in my life has, has superseded my love for Jesus. And whatever that thing is, it's threatening what it is that I love. So if, if I love my political ideology or I love my ideology around things like uh, gender, sexuality, race, all the hot button political issues, if that's my first love and my top priority, I'm going to feel outraged and angry anytime someone attacks it or offends it. And, and, and so that, 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 that's, again, just a little blip that says, huh, maybe my loves are disordered right now. Yeah. We do have this tendency that when we have idols, if someone encroaches upon them and we feel that they are threatened, we will oftentimes lash out at that person. We protect our idols. That's part of what an idol is, is that we cherish it and we value it. If you find yourself with these sort of knee-jerk reactions, letting that be an opportunity to ask yourself why, it doesn't necessarily mean that your position is wrong. That's not what I'm suggesting. It may be. No. Um, but why is the reaction the way it is? Someone yeah. raises a, a topic or you're hearing someone preach and they mention something simply about a subject and it, it automatically you get defensive. Mm. Why is that? Um, and what might that say about your loyalties? Well, I think you'd also ask yourself, and what do you do with that? Um, I know a lot of parents, for example, who anytime there's mention of uh, the LGBTQ 
LGBTQ agenda being taught in some fashion in schools, their sense of outrage and anger clicks on. And on one level, you could say, well, maybe there's some righteous anger. There, there are parents that say, hey, I don't think this is the school's job. I don't think they should be trying to hide from me what they're teaching my children inside of classrooms. And, and so, so there might be some good reasons for it. But often it's also just fear because it's not actually something happening in their school. It's something happening in a school in Texas or L.A. or Portland. It has nothing to do with what's happening in their school. And more importantly, I always say, well, what are you doing about that? Have you joined the PTA? Are you running for the school board? Like, are you doing anything productive to actually add to what's happening inside of your schools and your school system to to help uh, maybe resist some of these things you're concerned about? Because if you're not, you're just angry and your anger produces nothing. And so that's been, a, I mean, I, I, I've put my money where, where my mouth is on this because I, I felt some of that same outrage and anger over some of those same things. I said, you know what I need to do? I need to join my, my daughter's school board. And that's what I did. So I joined the school board and, you know, it's really boring. You know, we talk about budgets and salaries and school calendars. It's, it's not, it's not the most interesting stuff in the world, but I realized being angry produced nothing fruitful giving of my time, my money, and my energy to help the school be a better school. Now that's productive. And that's actual real politics. Anger isn't politics. Politics is getting involved on the local level to change the institutions where you actually have some real chance to influence them. Mm -hmm. And I would say too, if you can't have a conversation with someone you disagree with and keep a level head, if you can't conceptualize, like you mentioned, an inability to conceptualize the position of someone who disagrees with you. I'm not saying that you have to agree with them. I'm not even saying they're right. Uh, They may be wrong. And there are some issues where, as Christians, there's going to be more clearly right and wrong answers than others, but there's going to be a lot of gray matters, a lot of uh, wisdom and discernment as we seek to apply things Christianly. And if you can't conceptualize the person's position that you disagree with, if you can't construct how they might arrive at their position and disagree with you, um, you probably have an overly simplistic understanding of the situation, an uncharitable assessment of that person's view. And that's probably yeah. due, to, due to some tribalism. Mm, yeah. Let me ask you this question. How can we resist tribalism? Or if I can, I don't know if this is a term or if I'm coining it, but how can we untribalize or detribalize ourselves? Yeah, we, we talk about a number of habits and practices inside of the book that we hope people will implement. And I always tell people, you know, you, you can't do everything. So so pick one and do one at a time until it becomes a real habit. <laughs> uh, a few things. Uh, one would be what you just said, which is listening. Um, Jesus listened. He, he asked a lot of questions. And while the Bible doesn't always record the answers, I do think what the biblical authors are getting at was that Jesus was not the kind of guy to walk in a room and just start pontificating and giving all the answers. In fact, it had clearly bothered people. When they would ask him a question, he'd respond with his own question in turn, which tells us that Jesus, even though he could see inside of people's hearts, he still asked questions. Now, maybe he didn't need to hear what people were going to say to know what they were going to say, uh, but he knew that part of the process of change and transformation in their life looked like him listening to them and having a conversation. Hmm. And so, again, I, I think we should enter these conversations first and foremost with a disposition with a disposition of listening. Uh, secondly, I would say kindness and encouragement. We have to embrace active practices, especially on social media. Rather than getting on social media and, and, and posting the angry article or the angry comment, what if... For every uh, challenging article and comment you made, you decided you were going to make 20 encouraging comments. Yeah. 20 encouraging uh, l- little comments on something else that someone else was saying. Kindness and encouragement. We, we, we need more of that right now. And again, it's what the Bible calls us to do. We, we are supposed to be encouraging and, and, and showing gentleness and respect. I think another uh, practice that you can embrace is generosity. Um, 
can you give in a way to people who are on the other tribe? I'm not saying that if you're a Republican, you need to start giving to the to the DNC or something like that. What I am saying is that, hey, maybe you're a Republican and, and you personally believe that we should have uh, really strong immigration uh, restrictions in our country. And we could have that debate separately of what's the right approach there. Well, what would it look like for you to, to give to the uh, local organization that helps legal refugees, right? What, what if you gave your time actually to that yeah, organization? Yeah. If you start showing that kind of generosity, you might be shocked how it begins to change your views. It's hard to uh, dislike people. I'm not saying that someone who's pro-immigration dislikes immigrants. But what I am saying is that when you start to invest your time and your wealth inside of real-life people, it begins to change your perspective on particular issues. And this is something that we've really embraced as a church. Again, we're, we're a bigger church, so we can do some of this. But every Easter and Christmas, we try to give tremendously, hugely towards the needs of people in our community who aren't like us, who are different than us. A few years ago, we partnered with an organization called RIP Medical Debt to cancel medical debt in our state, Um, particularly the medical debt of anybody who makes two times the poverty rate. Um, because these people are highly, highly unlikely to ever be able to pay back their their debts. And the company we worked with, they're able to buy $1 of medical debt from a bank for only one penny. So if you give enough, you can cancel a tremendous amount of debt, which is huge, because if you have medical debt, it's hard to get housing, it's hard to get a job, they'll hound your, you and your family to get their money back, the creditors will. And so we just told our church, hey, what if we try to cancel all the medical debt in our city? And the church gave way more generously than we ever could have anticipated. And working with that organization, we were able to cancel something like $43 million of medical debt in our state. That was 33 counties of medical debt. And everybody got a letter in the mail that said, hey, your debt has been canceled in the name of Jesus. And here was the crazy thing. People got that letter who were Christians and non-Christians. People got that letter who were gay, straight, non-binary, everything in between. People got that letter who were white, black, Asian, Latino. It did not matter. And the amount of people who called us, we, we didn't even put our name on it. It just said, your, your debt's been canceled in the name of Jesus. They, I think they found us on the news. Um, when people called us, they'd say, hey, why did you do this? I didn't deserve this. And we'd tell them all the same thing. Yeah, we, we didn't deserve it. We didn't deserve it either. Um, and yet Jesus gave us the gift of his life. And what, what we saw happen in, in the years after that was that tribal boundaries, t- tribal walls, just they were torn down. I remember talking with an atheist who said, I hadn't considered Jesus or Christianity or anything like that until you guys did that. And it made me think, maybe there really is something to this. And this was a guy who was very antagonistic towards the church, very antagonistic towards Christianity. I mean, it is amazing. Generosity has this profound power to tear down walls. So how can you be generous to someone on the other side? Maybe it's the person across the street who voted for the other person, and it's just when you see them in need, you bring them a meal, you come and clean up their house. How can you show them generosity? You will be shocked how the tribal walls come crumbling down. Yeah, I think relationships is huge. Having conversations is huge. That's one of the things that we we try to do at our church is we will oftentimes host conversations over issues that we know are a little bit more difficult, a bit more debated to try to like no one's going in assuming like, hey, I'm going to give you a lecture, assuming I have all the answers for this. But let's have a conversation. Mm. Let's share our different perspectives on this and try to work together. It reminds us that we're working together. It reminds us that we're on the same team. We wear the same jerseys. The, the person who disagrees isn't my enemy. We're, we're all trying to think through this together. We're trying to apply our Christianity to these issues together, that we all have something to learn. 
So relationships and conversations. I think as well, applying some of those teachings of Jesus to the political realm. For example, bless those who curse. So when I'm cursed, what does it look like to actually turn around and rather than view that person as an enemy, but to actually respond in kindness to them? Yes. Like on Twitter or something, I will have people who will troll me um, for whatever reason. Uh, Oftentimes, you know, these are people who don't even know me, but they make assumptions or something like that. And I've tried to make it a habit. I'll try to respond by just saying something encouraging or saying, hey, I just want to let you know I prayed for you and your family. If I can see they have family members, like in their profile picture or whatever. I remember this one time someone had messaged me like this whole, just they went off on me and private message. I just kind of wrote out a prayer that I had prayed for him and just wanted to let him know that I was praying for him. And his it totally disarmed him. You know, he admitted, you know, I made a lot of assumptions about you. I don't really know you. I don't know why I did that. I'm having like a really hard day today. Please forgive me. Like that was out of line. It just took out my anger mm-hmm. on you. It's not to say we, you know, we bless in response to curses because it's always going to have a good result. That's not the point. But what if we actually tried to implement that ethic into such a hostile environment like politics currently is and show love to people that we even disagree yeah, with. Yeah, I love that. That's I'm, I'm going to try to uh, implement that practice in my life. I, that, that's good. We've talked a little bit about this in, uh, just throughout the conversation, yeah. but maybe we can end with this. One of the things that you guys try to do through the book is show specifically how our Christian faith and the gospel in particular, how we have Christian resources that actually provide the answer to tribalism. Mm -hmm. So let me ask that question. How does Christianity and the gospel in particular provide an answer to tribalism? Well, the, 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 the longer or maybe even shorter, who knows how long I'll talk for it, but the, the, the best answer to that question is in Ephesians 2, which most people know Ephesians 2 because it's a place that you know Paul says, for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith. It's this amazing message that Jesus has set us free from the demonic powers of darkness and not by virtue of our own work, our own righteousness, but by virtue of his own work, his own righteousness. Um, he set us free and he's made us friends with God. He's forgiven our sins and he's given us the promise of resurrection so that we can work out with the gift of his spirit, um, our, our, our own lives and holiness. And so everybody knows the first half of Ephesians because people say, hey, here's the gospel in these you know first 12 verses right here. But we love to stop there and we forget there's a whole second half to this chapter. After Paul says, hey, you've been forgiven of your sins and you've all been given this promise of resurrection, he turns and he talks to, to something that's happening inside of the churches in Ephesus, which is tribalism. And in particular, ethnic tribalism. People were dividing based on whether they were Jews and Gentiles. You know, did you eat kosher food? Or did you not eat kosher food? Do you practice Sabbath? Do you not practice the Sabbath? This was dividing churches at the time, and it was a major rift. And Paul goes in in the second half of this chapter and says that in Christ, you collectively, Jews and Gentiles, as wild as this would have been to their imaginations, you have been built up into the temple of God. You, alongside one another, have been made one in Christ Jesus. And so how does he make that leap? Well, stop and think about it. Before the cross, it doesn't matter your ethnicity, your sexuality, your nationality, your political ideology. Before the cross, we are all exactly the same. We are sinners who have fallen short of God's glory. We're all the same before the cross. And in the promise of the resurrection, you know what else is true? We're all the same. We have been given by grace something that we don't deserve, the promise of life in Jesus forever with Jesus. And so all those things that separate us in the resurrection— they don't matter. What matters is that we are in Christ. And, and so when I say that we have the resources inside of Christianity, I mean that right down to the core of the gospel, right down to the very core of the gospel is a message that fundamentally before God, before the cross and in the resurrection, it's a level playing field. 
No one gets to walk in thinking they're superior because of what they believe or how they look or what their desires are because we're not. We are all the same before him. And when you start to realize that your neighbor, who might not even be a Christian, who you think has the worst views of reality out there, yes, they may be deceived, but just remember, you too were once deceived. Mm-hmm. And Jesus rescued you, not because you deserved it, not because you were smart, not because you figured it out. He rescued you because he loved you. So how much more so do you need to love that neighbor who, just like you, <laughs> was deceived? Th- this is how the gospel, again, it just levels the playing field. And once that playing field's leveled, it is far harder to have those kinds of uh, uh, antagonistic, tribal feelings towards people who are outside of the faith or inside of the faith. Right. The gospel unites us, as you said, Ephesians 2, breaking down those uh, barriers of division. The gospel also tells us that we don't have it all together. We didn't have it all together. We needed to be saved, and we still don't have it all together. We still are being saved and will be saved. It infuses uh, a heavy dose of humility if we truly understand salvation by grace. Um, So we don't have it all together in terms of our own personal Christian living, let alone you know how we're approaching politics like so a level of humility to just understand that uh, we're in process and other people are in process not having this unrealistic expectation of on our church members that they're going to agree with us on everything and we, we should expect to find uh, people who are immature in the church when it comes to how they engage politics ourselves included so and then finally i would say the confidence that we have because of Christ. The gospel gives us confidence that at the end of the day, Jesus wins. Every single political year, just wait in two years from now, they're going to be saying this is the most important election that's ever occurred. I called it here right now. You, you've heard it here first. The most important election. Just wait. <laughs> they're going to say it. I guarantee it. Kirk's got um, it. They say it every single time. It, it's not. You know, The most important appointment to political office, we might say, that ever occurred, occurred uh, when Jesus was enthroned. And that's not going to be undone. It's not going anywhere. These elections, you know, they matter, but they are blips on the radar of where history is headed. And so we can go into politics with a confidence because of the gospel, too. Hmm. Beautiful and well said. Thanks so much for uh, joining me today. It's been great having you. Um, If folks want to pick up the book again, that is Truth Over Tribe, Pledging Allegiance to the Lamb, Not to the Donkey or the Elephant. No, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a delightful conversation. 